Toro Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. My name is Caleb Hegg. With me as always, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Hoff? What up, loud mouth? How's it going, brother? It is good. God is good. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in, everybody. What up and shalom to all of our listeners. What up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. We got our, our numbers bumped up right at, right before we went on air. We were like, where is everybody? And then all of a sudden, the chat room filled so uh, thanks, everybody, for being a part of it with us today. We broadcast live every morning at 10 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Not every morning. Well, every well, morning we're on. Every every morning we're on, which is every Wednesday. That's what I meant. And uh, you can listen to it online. You can also listen to it on, watch it on YouTube. Uh, at our programming desk always is Gary Springer. A big thank you to Gary for programming to our research radio in general. And in charge of our chat room, as well as all of our things website, uh, is Mark Randall. So big thanks to Mark. And we, that is the Rob and Caleb Show, are produced and presented by TorahResource.com, which is the parent company to Torah Resource Radio. So if you would like to read free articles, listen to um, audio, or read f- free articles, listen to audio, watch videos, buy products uh, that relate to Messianic Judaism and anything Bible, go to TorahResource.com, click on the shop button, or click on the articles button, and you can be a part of all of that. There's a lot of free stuff there. So uh, you don't have to pay anything to be able to read good articles and all that kind of stuff. You do know how, you do need to know how to read. You do have to know how to read. That's that's true. I suppose you could get one of those programs that reads it for you and like you listen. Aha, uh-huh, there you go. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> Okay, well, hey, we got a lot going on today. Let me uh, move over to my show notes. Actually, it's interesting because I've been moving, uh, as everyone knows, which is a huge process. And last night, I finally got my books out of the boxes. So now I feel like I've actually made it a home. And uh, my wife allowed me to have three bookshelves in the study. And all told, I have about a shelf more than three bookshelves. So now I'm kind of at a, in a quandary of where to put my extra books because she's pretty much said I can't have any more bookshelves. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's read this first. Check this out. I, I found this on YouTube about five minutes before we came on the air. Uh, Second Temple era mikvah discovered in Jerusalem Ain Karim neighborhood. When a family living in Jerusalem, Ain Karim neighborhood, recently began some uh, home renovations, they discovered beneath their living room floor an astonishingly well-preserved mikvah ritual bath. Mikvah means ritual bath for those who are unaware. Amit Raim, an archaeologist working for the Israeli uh, Antiquities Authority, shared the following. Quote, such instances of finding antiquities beneath a private home can happen only in Israel and Jerusalem in particular. Beyond the excitement and the unusual story of the discovery of the mikvah, its exposure is of archaeological importance. Uh, and then he goes on and on and on. So anyway, uh, the rock-hewn mikvah, which was fully intact, measured 3.5 meters in length and 2.4 meters in width with a depth of 1.8 meters and is meticulously plastered according to the laws of purity appearing in the halakha, said Ra'im. Um, so it's a staircase. It, I only bring this up because uh, there's actually pictures. You can find this on the Temple Institute Facebook page. There's pictures of it. It it's super cool. Can you imagine? Like, oh, honey, let's you know, let's put a new floor in the living room. Okay, and then you start putting your new floor in, and lo and behold, there's a, a first century mikvah <laughs> underneath your floor. It's like, honey, I have a new idea for the basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I wonder if they get to keep their ha- charge admission. Yeah, well, I mean, I wonder oh, how that cool. works. Do they get to own the house still? I mean, technically it's theirs, right? But it's in Jerusalem and it's part of like an archaeological dig now. I don't know. That's pretty nuts. 
Yeah. Speaking of purity, did anybody see the the like the Orthodox Jewish like priest on an airplane in a in a plastic bag? <laughs> no. No. There's. Yeah. He's like. He's. He's like in a giant plastic bag, so he won't. Uh, so if they <laughs> if they fly over a cemetery or something, he won't contract uh, corpse oh. defilement. Oh no! Because he's a Cohen. Yeah, but he's already he's already filed, right? I don't know how. I mean, there's pictures online like he he's sitting in a seat, and he's all wrapped in a giant. Uh, I don't, plastic bag. I don't get that though, Rob. Because now explain to me this: if those who might not know this, I'm actually a student at Torah Resource Institute. So Rob is actually one of my teachers. So believe te- it or not, teach me here, Rob. In the Torah, it says that if you build the the altar, that the altar can can make clean. Right. Once you touch the altar, you become clean. So why wouldn't they just wait for the temple to be built, then build the altar? And then touch. Okay, well, I know what you're talking about. That we shouldn't go down that path. We shouldn't today. shouldn't go down that path because there's different ways to understand it. That when it says that the person who touches it will be clean, means that they they ha- they will already be pure. It means unper- an impure person is not permitted to touch it. Not that it not that it not that holiness is contagious. But it is if it is in terms of Yeshua, right? What we're dealing with the, the, this priest is he believes that, A, he's already, that he's a grown man who's, who has not been defiled by uh, contact with a dead person or has never walked over a cemetery. Or touched someone who is... Or touched somebody, yeah. And it's a pretty, pretty fantastic claim because, you know, we're 2,000 years without any kind of um, at least official purification type of uh, implements, instruments. Rage of Obelis interpreted by experts. (laughs) (laughs) That's our new sound clip. And uh, I should say, uh, we should explain what he says. He says, read your Bible. It's again. I was talking. Read your Bible. Well, it's hard to, even once you know what he says, it's hard to hear what he says. He says, read your Bible. It's interpreted by experts. And who is it? It's the guy who always takes his shirt, shirt off in movies. What's his name? Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. <laughs> As interpreted. Uh, yeah, we got a couple. I, I, I should say this. This is interesting. Rob, his father, his parents have started listening to our show. And so all of a sudden, Rob has stepped up his game and is actually preparing for the show now. And he actually has gotten some sound clips. It's a whole new world when Rob starts preparing for the show. It's very nice. I should have t- I should have called his parents when he first got on the air and, and told him to start listening. Uh, Rob has given us several uh, good sound clips this week. Uh, let's see here. What's this one? I think you just use the Bible, do whatever the hell you like. <laughs> Uh, we got one more that Rob sent us. So the prophecy says, a prophecy that Miss Reg could have been. <laughs> okay, and not only that, not only has he given us sound clips to use throughout the uh, various shows, but he actually came up with two sound clips for our show today. That Are we're we gonna... doing at first or kosher first? Well, let's actually go to a. Should we open the mailbag? We have one piece of yeah. mail. Okay, let's open the mailbag. Mail Okay, we got an interesting piece of mail from one of our listeners. I don't know if they actually wanted this public, so I've changed it just a hair so that it doesn't imply You've any... changed the names. Yes, exactly. I've taken out names. Um, my microphone is totally in the way. It's hard to see. Okay. We, she says, we know a person that has banned any pictures in their home due to the prohibition against graven images found in Deuteronomy four fifteen through 18. They have destroyed all the pictures they had up until they read this recently. And unfortunately, this includes all of their wedding pictures, the baby pictures of their four children and all other family pictures. Nor do they have paintings or pictures from nature on their walls. So she goes on in the email to ask, you know, what's your take on this graven image thing? 
What do you think, Rob? Should we get rid of all of our pictures? I think, honestly, that's heartbreaking to me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a picture guy anyway. I don't, you know, I didn't own a camera until like four years ago, three years ago. But I still have we're, we're, copious amounts of pictures. I was recently looking through a, a uh, scrapbook. She used to make these scrapbooks. So we got these scrapbooks of the kids, uh, you know, growing up. And I was just laughing, looking at these cute pictures of our kids I, I, that I totally, you know, things I totally forgot about. Yeah. And and I see them, and there's just so much joy there. And, and uh, you know, it's it, it's we're not... It's not a worshiping thing. We're not worshiping images or, you know, here, I would have a question for that person. Would they use the internet? Like, is it okay to see an image? Um, so can they not, I, I wonder where they draw the line. Like mirrors like right now. Can you have a right mirror now, in your I house? Look, I see a picture of you on, on my computer screen. So is that. Yeah. Can you not. I get what you're saying. Can you not use the internet? Can you not use, what about, uh, well, this will tie into like eating food offered to idols. What about, uh, what, <laughs> what about places that have pictures in them? Not necessarily idols, but pictures like, can you eat at your friend's house? Cause they got pictures of their family. Yeah. See, they would have to have a whole tractate of, <laughs> of the, well, what, a, and then, and then you get into what about mirrors? Can, can you have mirrors in your house? And then the question would be, what about natural mirrors? Can you look into a body of water? If you're not going to use mirrors, then can you look into a body of water? I mean, obviously, I think that there's a, uh, and I think, the, well, the ultra-Orthodox will say no pictures, but it seems to me that that's a fence, right? Because the Orthodox have pictures in their house. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, even the rabbis, and not that the rabbis are the, you know, final voice, but the, but even the rabbis from ancient times, it seems as though um, they their idea of a graven image was something that you would worship. Yeah, that's what the Bible's talking about, I think. Well, and not only that, but you have like even in the in the when Bar Kokhba was uh, rising to power in the second century, you know they they minted coins. Now it didn't necessarily have a picture. Did the Bar Kokhba? They didn't have a picture of a person, did they? Did they have Bar Kokhba on it? No, they did. But they but they didn't have. but they had a, a menorah or something on the back, right? They had different symbols. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So like would, a, so wouldn't like that a be so far? So know. wouldn't that be a graven image? <laughs> According yeah, to this make person, a distinction between. Uh, a plant life can a, can uh, an animal or a plant is that different than well yeah, I suppose animal or but a shofar is a horn so maybe that's okay but wait hang on Rob let's take let, let's take it back to let's take it back to the Torah let's go to the Torah would this person then say that it was wrong for Moses to build the snake that was on the 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 rod the copper snake or whatever that was on the pole. And and what happened? The, the, they ended up worshiping. They ended up worshiping it, right? But God commanded them to do that. And not only that, but what about what about the cherubim in the in the temple? Yeah, yeah. And then when Solomon built the the basin, remember it had like the the, the yokes of oxen underneath it. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, the prohibition can't be about making images. It has to be about making images that are worshipped. What about the Ark of the Covenant? You got angels on the top of that. And in the in the first temple, it seems like the the wings of the cherubim actually touched the walls, right? And then touched in the middle. And the Ark of the Covenant was what? Behind it? Or I'm so bad with my temple imagery. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I need to get that the in-depth book on the temple so I can... No, but that'll have images in it. Oh, that'll have images. Yeah. Oh, what about books? Can your kids not have pop-up books? Basically, I think the whole point of our conversation here is that that is an absolutely flawed theology um, to say that you can't have any images whatsoever. Because then the Bible itself would contradict itself. Because God tells us to put images into the temple. So, while this person might be zealous 
Uh, I don't think that they're, I think that they're a bit misguided. Um, that's my personal opinion. Okay, let's move on. So, uh, Rob got an email asking about the untranslatable Olive Tov. And we need to explain for, uh, we've talked about the Olive Tov before. Yeah, Adam says, can you watch TV? I'm sorry, I haven't been looking at the chat room and, and I'll catch up now. Um, so, we need to, we need to, Adam says, I thought it was gravy images, not graven. <laughs> okay. So we need to, uh, explain what the olive tov is, and then we can talk about whether or not it's translatable or not. The olive tov is actually not called the olive tov. It's, uh, the sign of the direct o- object. It's a word that is, that is sounded out et, and it's used in Hebrew. You're a Hebrew teacher, Rob. Why don't you explain what the at, at the very basic level I what learned, is? I learned from a, from a recent the clip from Chuck Missler that we'll hear today that it's really um, what does he call it the, the Aleph the tau. Aleph Tau yeah Tau <laughs> the Aleph the Aleph Tau. I don't, wait, well, where did he get that? Because that I, I don't think anyone. I don't ever, know. He was the first one back like over tw- I think twenty years ago. He was that's where I first heard it. Um, but anyway, we'll hear his clip pretty quickly here. But, but, but tell but us in exactly. Hebrew, what... In Hebrew, you, you have a word that marks, it's a, a, a particle that is spelled with an aleph and a tav. Aleph tav, et is how it's pronounced. That is placed in sentences before the definite direct object of the sentence. So, it, and, and the example I like to use is, in, in English, we, we accomplish, we don't use a marker for the direct object because we accomplish it by, work or, or by word order. And the, the classic example is, the dog bit the man. In English, I say the dog bit the man. You know the dog's doing the biting and the man is the one getting bitten. I take the same exact words and I flip them around. I say, the man bit the dog. I've changed the, the pictures completely different now. So I, I just moved the words around. Well, in Hebrew... And Greek, for that matter. Yeah, in Hebrew, you, you, you can move the words around. You just always put et in front of it. So you could say, the dog bit et the man. You have this little et, you say, in front of the thing that is being acted upon. And then you could put, at, at the beginning, you could say et the man bit the dog, and it would still mean that the dog was doing the biting. And in Greek, we have it, it is accomplished by cases. So we would put, uh, the dog would be in a nominative case, so it would have, you know, dogus, <laughs> bit, you know, manon, or something like that. We'd put a different ending on it, on the word man to indicate that it was the object of the verb. And then you could flip the word order around and, and you're always going to know who's doing the action and who's receiving the action. Okay, let me let, let me let me repeat just a little bit so that I can try to make sure that I got it for, for our audience. So, in Hebrew there's no word order. The words can be completely jumbled. Well, and, not, I mean they're not jumbled. Well, no, but but to someone who doesn't know any Hebrew, if you were just reading r- word order, they would sound completely jumbled. And the way that we know who is doing the biting in your analogy is by this marker, et, right? Or who is being bitten. Who is being bitten. Okay. Yeah, is, the, is The subject of the sentence. The subject of the does sentence. Does not have the et. I, I should, <laughs> I don't know where my head is. I should, uh, I, I should be able to explain this perfectly well, seeing as though I've taken two years of, of Hebrew. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's like the first thing you learn, too. It's like one of the first things you learn. Okay, keep going then. So... So we have this movement within in uh, the messianic realm. We have this sub movement of people. I don't know what to call them. The Olive Tavers, basically. Well, the- yeah, because what happens is this: is that this is the mystery. People read in the English Bible. They look back at an interlinear Bible where it's got like the Hebrew with English, or yeah, with English under each Hebrew word, and they'll say, "Wow, there's all these gaps." Every time there's this this word that's spelled Olive Tav, there's nothing underneath it. It's untranslatable. It's not translated. But what they don't realize is that it's because 
it's accomplished through work or word order. Okay, but hang on, we, we need to go we or, need, or case ending in Greek. We need to go even we need to go even further though, because what these people basically say is that in Revelation where Yeshua says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, what they do is they first say, Well, Revelation was first written in Hebrew or Aramaic, which there's there's no way to prove that. We don't believe that. We believe that the that Revelation was first written in Greek. Um, but when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, what they do is they say, oh, well, he was speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, so he didn't really say the Alpha and the Omega. What he said was the Aleph and the Tav, the first letter and the last letter of the of the Hebrew alphabet. And the way that you spell this word at, this sign of the direct object, is Aleph Tav. And so they say, oh, what he's really saying is, I'm this untranslatable word. Correct, Rob? That's what I've heard people claim okay so keep yeah. going then and then people have they have bibles now and we've talked i think we talked about this last yes. year a little bit there's bibles out there you can buy that called the olive Tav bibles and and it's a just a big distraction it takes people down the wrong road They're, they they are the same people that are avoiding doing the tough work and learning verb paradigms and things like that because they like the indiana jones adventure story and but they end up twisting the meaning of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, I've got. I wrote a. I'm writing up a blog. I think we'll post it today, just on that. And that's in response to an email I received asking for some guidance on why we need to be careful about this Olive Tov teaching. But it, let's play the clip because the clip. What the first one is from Zechariah. Uh, it's Chuck. This is Chuck Missler, and you know, I I just Googled it and found it. Uh, this is a more. Re- I think this was from 2014, but he's been teaching this for over 20 years. Now, now Rob sent me uh, this clip. I don't know if this is the same clip. I just watched maybe a, a few. I haven't listened to the clip that he actually sent me, but he sent me a video clip. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Chuck Missler was wearing a dress jacket, a dress coat. But it was all leather. Is that true? I, I don't know. I mean, it looked kind of like it in the video. <laughs> wow. Wow, that is intense. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe it's my, my young style. I don't, I'm, I'm, 30, I'm almost 35 years old. So, no, I'm almost 34. Wow. <laughs> I'm almost 34. I'm already losing my mind. But an all leather dress jacket, that's, uh, that, is impre- that is impressive. That's a statement. That is a statement for sure. Okay, so you're looking for Missler's Zach, right? Yeah. Here we go. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, in your Bible, it reads, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they've pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. There are two untranslated letters between the me and the whom. They shall look upon me, and there's an aleph and a tau, whom they've pierced. And uh, so if you look at that in the English, they shall look upon me whom they've pierced. In the Hebrew, there are two letters that are not translated. And those two letters would appear, if they were translated, between the me and the whom. Let me read that another way. And they shall look upon me, the aleph and the tau whom they've pierced. Okay. Go for it, Rob. Okay, so <laughs> this yeah, this is absolute this he's apparently a doctor. They call him Dr. Missler. But he's and not a doctor. I, I don't know where he I don't know where he got his his doctorate and and even if he has his doctorate, it certainly has nothing to do with the Hebrew language. I mean, he he is he is destroying it's it's invented meaning it's a perfect example of someone inventing meaning and then trying to sell it well they, hang on just a second he's, what, he's what, trying to sell invented meaning to his audience and, what, and i don't like it maybe one of the ways that we know that that, that chuck here uh, is not well learned in his hebrew is because he is saying tau which is a Greek. Aleph. Aleph. Aleph and Tau. Tau is a Greek letter. 
<laughs> Elephant Tau. And, and what it, it's really Tav. He's red. He he hasn't he hasn't actually learned from real living teachers. He's he's read it in a book, and so his imagination is supplying the vowels that he's never actually. Uh, anyway, I, I don't I don't know. So, well, hang on, just, hang, hang on, just a sec. Uh, someone in the chat room says, "I'm pretty sure his his doctorate is in the field of science, physics, or engineering. It's got to be engineering." And the reason I no, say it, no, it's in Bible. <laughs> I know, I know, he was a an engineer, but his his doctorate is recent. It was like in the last ten years. Is it, it honorary? Some no, it was through some Louisiana Baptist University or something. I look, you can look online. Huh. Uh, Interesting. But it's in biblical studies or something like that, and it's it's nonsense. It it's absolutely nonsense. Okay, so um, so he says he says that it should be. Tra- I mean, keep going here, Rob. Well, this this phrase from Zechariah is the passage that he's he's talking about. This curious phrase that he sees the et in Zechariah twelve ten. It's et asher, the uh, whom it just translates to whom, <clears throat> and it occurs that con- construction occurs uh, one hundred forty seven times, I think. In, in the scripture, and if I if I here's an example. If I used his same, if I just took him as his word, that means I could take this word Genesis. I could take this verse Genesis nine twenty four. When Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, he <laughs> learned what the Aleph Tav, his youngest son, had done to him. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the same using the same the same construction. Yeah, it's the it it would it's like the same. It's like, oh, can I can I do that everywhere? I, it doesn't make sense. It's it's a waste of of opportunity to tell to teach people the truth of the Bible. It's it's just wasted uh, wasted words, and people need to be aware. Don't because you get someone like Missler, who's real, you know, a great salesman. I mean, he knows how to to get an audience's attention and to you know get them to pause and boy it's just troubling because if this if if he's missing this and this is something that a first year hebrew student would not get away with what else is he getting away with where else in his life is he applying this shallow level of critical uh investigation it's got to be happening in other places of his life. You know what I mean? It's, are we going to say this is the only place where he's just missing the mark? He's just really shallow here, but everywhere else, it's deep. No. It's well, because- no. Of course, we've heard we've heard Chuck uh, teach on all sorts of nonsense. His teaching on the Nephilim alone was was just so out there. Yeah. So, uh, so that's one. Now, now give us the other the other clip. The Missler Gen, right? Yeah. This also occurs elsewhere in the scripture. I'll give you just one case and then we'll move on. In the opening chapter of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Here again, there is an Aleph and a Tau untranslated. It doesn't have a Makef. It's not required grammatically. In the beginning, God, the Aleph and the Tau, created the heaven and the earth. So he said that he has this idea that you need to have the et plus the makaif, which is this little line, was when it's necessary grammatically. And he's just so wrong. He misread, he probably just misread a footnote in a book or something. It, it's so horrible that I can't even believe that he's out there teaching this. I, and I think there's just a lot of people in his audience that, have no way to discern because from their perspective you know he seems like he's knows what he's talking about okay wait hang on just a sec there's a there's a conversation going on in the in the uh in the chat room that just has to be d- discussed so this per- one person says is uh, in reference to chuck missler did he get the diploma from a diploma mill someone else says no it's a genuine education and then uh, later, that, later the other person posted the alumni page of the diploma mill, which he got his, his, uh, his doctorate from. 
And then uh, the person responds, what Chuck Missler hasn't done is to look at every one of, of the one, uh, well, 10,907 times and demonstrate that each usage applies to Messiah Yahashua. First of all, the Messiah is not Yahashua. We don't believe in the Messiah Yahashua. We believe in the Messiah Yeshua. Yahashua is Joshua, not Yeshua. So uh, there's that problem right there. Uh, so the other problem is, is that it wouldn't matter if Chuck Missler looked at all 10,907 occurrences of the et because most of them don't apply to what he's teaching. All you have, all you have to do is take one of them and show that it doesn't apply and it, and it topples the entire thing. Missler does not know what he's talking about in this area. Now he might be brilliant when it comes to science and things like that. He, he, you know, he headed. I think he was CEO of Western Digital at one time. So I, the guy knows technology and physics. I'm not questioning him on that. I'm just saying this is nonsense. He shouldn't be teaching anything that has to do with Hebrew. Oh man! They should. They the Hebrew police should come and revoke his. His, uh, Adam, look, don't uh, don't cross Adam. So basically, Adam said it was a diploma mill. Somebody else said no, it wasn't. Adam puts a uh, up a actual excerpt from the college which Missler got his doctorate from. Question: Is Louisiana, Louisiana Baptist Theological Seminary accredited with a government or religious accredited? Uh, accrediting agency answer no lbts has never sought government accreditation due to the nature of the educational services we provide our mission is and always has been to train people for ministry because of our strong belief in the separation of powers we have never invited government oversight of our programs however we uphold high standards of academic integrity now i'm not saying that a, a school can't do that torah resource institute has not sought government accreditation so there are at juilliard School of Music has never sought accreditation. Chicago School of Music has never, uh, uh, or is it university? I forget which university one. University of Chicago. University of Chicago has never sought accreditation. So I'm not saying that there aren't universities out there that are good universities, but the point is is that uh, whether or not Missler got a... This is most certainly not, a, quote, uphold high standards of academic integrity. There is, there is absolute lack of academic integrity. And even if, even if, to suggest that there is, that means Missler's knowingly feeding people itchy ear things. Well, beyond this, if you if you get a doctorate in biblical studies from any place, any place, you, yeah, yeah, that is that is worth its salt, and you don't have and you don't you don't have a basic understanding of the letters, if you can't say the the Hebrew alphabet correctly, tau, come on. Um, then, then something is wrong with with the school that you were going to. You can't get a doctorate and not know the Hebrew in biblical studies and not know the Hebrew alphabet correctly. It doesn't work like that. And that's the sure sign that this is, in fact, uh, either extremely low standards or a diploma mill, one of the two. So I agree that the uh, accreditation is not everything. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and honestly, with the Supreme Court recent ruling on on gay marriage uh there are a lot of university christian universities and schools that are going to be losing their accreditation from the uh, from the government and the reason being is that they're not going to allow homosexuals to uh come to their school because it goes against their bylaws and as a religious organization and the government will will uh then stop the accreditation. They will lose financial support from the government, and it's going to be a real tough time for religious institutions that uphold the uh, biblical model of marriage. This is a problem, and so we're going to see more and more good universities losing accreditation. So once again, accreditation is not everything, but you, you can't get a doctorate from a university and not know your Hebrew alphabet. It just doesn't work like that. People who have doctorates in biblical studies from good universities uh, usually have a very solid grasp of of Hebrew and Greek. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I just went off there a little bit. Go ahead, Rob. Anything? I mean, come on. Let's keep going. So, uh, can, well, I, I, let me have to keep. No. Let me ask you. Let me ask a question then. Let me ask a question then. Can the the at the sign of the direct object is it untranslatable or does it is it ever translated? 
is translated in if well it depends on how we view translation when we trans if we look at the Aramaic translations of Genesis one they in Aramaic it's there is also a sign of the direct object definite direct object but it's spelled yod tav and that's in many different dialects of Aramaic they they have an et but it's they, they it's yat they say yat so for example in Genesis one of of the Peshitta or any of the early Aramaic uh, translations of the Torah, you have, instead of the Aleph Tav, you just have a Yod Tav. So it's directly translated, if you want to look at it like that. If you look at it into a, a non-Semitic language like Greek, Greek doesn't use the Et. What it does instead, it changes, the, the words themselves are inflected. So the word, the heavens, so in the beginning God created Et, the heavens, and at the earth, instead of at the heavens, it just says, it, it changes the word heavens to so that the word itself indicates that it is the object of the verb. Same with the word earth. Whereas in Hebrew, it's just the same word with an et in front of it. Because e Hebrew is not inflected. Hebrew, it's, without the et, you wouldn't know if, if the heavens created God or if God created the heavens, in other words. Yeah, but sometimes within within Hebrew, we translate the uh, sign of the direct object as the, right? No, not. I mean, well, we I, maybe for translation help. I'm almost in, positive. In, in English, we accomplish it by word order. It's the order. The et is translated into English as what order the words are in in the sentence. I agree. Uh, like back to the example, the dog bit the man. The word order accomplishes the same thing that the et accomplishes in. in but Hebrew. in but in Hebrew, a lot of the times you won't have the sign. You won't have the article. You'll just have the sign of the direct object. So the dog bit man is what the Hebrew will actually read. But we put the in where the sign of the direct object is. Correct. I suppose that could happen from time to time. Here's the other thing: is that the the, the same two letters, aleph tav. And it's the second person feminine pronoun, at. It's the spelled the same, meaning you, like if you're talking to a woman, at. Sometimes it's vocalized. It's ata, but they just don't put the hey at the end, ata. So it, it's, uh, it's nonsense. What Missler is teaching right there in those clips is nonsense. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on then. Let's move to food, should we? Why not? Okay, so um, has anyone... I'm going to write a blog post about this, by the way. And Rob's writing a blog post about the untranslatable et that should go up, what, today? We're hoping today. Sure. Um, have you ever had the friend out there that... I've had these friends, and I've been this friend before, who has questioned whether or not we can eat at places like P.F. Chang's. You know, you walk into P.F. Chang's, and there is uh, a huge, and I mean huge, like half a story tall Buddha sitting there. And uh, you have people who say, oh, well, you can't eat at P.F. Chang's because you can't eat food offered to idols, right? Um, now, let's actually move to, let's read this first. There we are. Okay, so uh, I found this this little article. When you bite into a delicious pizza, succulent sandwich, or luscious lamb chops, are you possibly eating food that has been sacrificed to idols? An outspoken Amer uh, American pastor says yes, and he's sounding the alarm for Christians to be aware of the Islamic influence he calls backdoor Sharia, now nibbling its way across the fruited uh, plain. At issue says Mark Biltz of El Shaddai Ministries in Bonnie Lake, Washington. And if you don't know who Mark Biltz is, he's the guy who, who uh, basically made popular the blood moon theory. He wrote a book on it. Um, is eating food that's halal, in, order, in other words, lawful or permitted for the Muslim diet. So now this is, I saw this argument on Facebook recently. Somebody said somebody posted a picture of a uh, uh, somebody po posted a picture of a piece of meat that had been kosher slaughtered so it had a kosher hexer on it 
and then it had a halal stamp on it too. So they had done dual <laughs> inspections. They'd done halal and they'd done kosher. And the person was saying, this is unkosher food. You can't eat this because it's halal slaughtered. And then, of course, everyone said, well, no, you can't eat that anyway because it's, it's food offered to idols, right? Um, so... Muslim, I'm going to keep going with this article for just another couple paragraphs. Uh, Muslims join many Jews and some Christians in avoiding the consumption of certain animals such as pigs and birds of prey. But those of the Islamic faith also have their meat blessed in the name of their God, Allah. From the Christian standpoint, Allah would be an idol, Biltz told WND. In a sermon last weekend, <clears throat> pardon me, in a sermon last weekend, which he posted online, Biltz explained, in order, quote, in order for it to be halal, they have to slaughter the animal facing Mecca, and they have to say this prayer about Allah is great and greater than all other gods. Muslims can only eat food that is halal, that has been sacrificed to the to their idol, Allah, and with Allah's name prayed over it. Okay, so where's Milk Biltz getting uh, this from the Bible? This article has been around for a while, right? This isn't like... This article was written in... Hang on. I and mean, this was couple years ago maybe 2011 yeah okay january 27 2011 um so yeah so it's not like he just said this or anything um i put in uh, food <laughs> sacrificed idols this is the first thing that came up um so then the question is where is he getting it from and an even bigger question would be uh, where, you know, this this debate was obviously raging in the apostolic scriptures in the New Testament, okay? Uh, whether or not people could eat food, sacrificed idols or not. We see it in Acts. We'll read those passages in a few seconds. We also see Paul talking about being able to eat food uh, that's been sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 8, okay? And we'll read that in a few seconds. Uh, but but people would ask maybe where do we find in the Torah that we're not allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols, and the answer is we don't really. Here's the passage that this comes from Exodus thirty four fifteen. Otherwise you might make a co- now this is if you don't keep the you know if you don't uh, do what the Lord says. Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. So that's where people get the prohibition of of eating things sacrificed to idols. Is this this passage Exodus thirty four fifteen? Um, well, there's there is another one. Is there? I couldn't find yeah, it. No, numbers twenty five. Numbers twenty five. Okay, you got it. Well, yeah, it's, it's so it's it, it's uh, at Baal Peor where it's after Balaam trying to curse Israel. It says when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to commit sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. These women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And so those are that those sacrificers or zevachim. Those are ones that the people would eat. Then the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel uh, joined themselves to Baalpor, and the anger of the Lord flared up against Israel. Okay, but the points. Okay, and and thank you for that. But the point but they're tied together. So, yeah, exactly. So the, the eating meat sacrificed to idols is like code word for also for the sexual immorality and the worship of other gods. So part so those are all tied together. To, so taking part in the meal sacrifice. Right. Yeah. And 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 it, what's assumed there too are all the, uh, these other kind of practices that are going on in that that you know, I mean there were these other these were there were temples to all these different deities. You know, we know there was temple prostitution and all sorts of uh crazy things that were going on um, in the ancient world at these temples. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then we, I mean, and so with that in mind, so uh, the idea of partaking in idolatrous practice, which is a, a sacrifice slash meal to another god. That's, that's the context that we have from the Torah. With that in mind, now let's go to the apostolic scriptures. Of course, everyone is aware of of uh, uh, the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. And if you're not, okay, I apologize. Uh, but yeah, so this is the four prohibitions. Uh, Acts 15.20 says, uh, this is the first prohibition of four that is given to the Gentiles if they want to come into the, into the synagogue. 
but that the, uh, we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication from what is strangled and from blood. So those are the four prohibitions. It's reemphasized in Acts 21-25, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from food uh, and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Okay, so my father has written an art, uh, article on this. Let's see here. Let me try to find it. And uh, this is on page 11. You can find this in your show notes. I'll just read you what my father has written on this. I think that he explains this quite well. And I, 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 accept, I accept what he has written on this. Uh, I, I, take, I take this as, as my stance as well. The words meat offered to idols translate only one word in the Greek. The word ado. <laughs> it's been two months since I've been out of Greek. Uh, maybe not even that. Eidolothutas. Thank you. Is used nine times in the apostolic scriptures and always in the context of eating food at a pagan temple. This fact is is uh, strengthened by the phrase used in the initial listing in Acts fifteen twenty. Their things contaminated by idols clearly refers to the pollution of food used in rituals of the pagan temple. Likewise, the same word is similarly used in 4 Maccabees 5.2. By using this word, the apostles were not, prohibited, uh, were not prohibiting food from the common market, but specifically food at a meal in connection with an idolatrous ceremony. Indeed, the Mishnah tractate Avodah does not prohibit the use of things belonging to idolaters, nor even entering a temple building or a precinct that contained an idol. I hope people understand what he's saying. Basically, it's not that you couldn't go in. You, you, you could even go into a pagan temple. And the reason why is because in the first century, a lot of different things went on in the pagan temples. There was markets. There was the banking system went through the pagan temple. So if you were a Jew living in the first century in Jerusalem, chances are you had to go into a pagan temple at some time. It didn't mean you were going into worship. There were all sorts of things that were going on in the pagan temple. Probably temples. not in Jerusalem. I mean, if you were traveling okay. about. Okay, I mean. fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. So um, let me try to find my place again. In general, in general categories... The sages strictly forbade three things, with many rulings for each. Uh, this is a little anachronistic. My father understands that, but uh, he's trying to give an over, overview of what the rabbis thought of this maybe a, a couple centuries later. Aiding idolaters in, the, in their idolatry, uh, deriving any benefit from idols or idolatrous practices, and participating in any manner in the worship of idols. There is nothing that directly prohibits entering a pagan temple or eating in the courtyard. But the, purpose, but the purposes for entering and the manner in which activities were done within the temple complex made all the difference. The Gentile believers would need to learn carefully what they could and could not do in connection with all matters pertaining to the pagan temple. And since the Jewish community generally suspected Gentiles of continuing in their former idolatry, it was necessary for the apostles to make clear rulings on the matter and to negate all suspicions. Okay, so... Um, I think that I think my father. Th- this paper is quite long, actually, and you can uh, you can find it in your show notes. You can find it on TorahResource.com. I think that he builds a strong case for what he's saying here. Um, so then let's go back to the scriptures and to what Paul says. Um, let's see here. Actually, I don't have it. What in the world am I doing? Are you looking for the First Corinthians? Yeah, page? read the First Corinthians passage. Oh, it's it's on our show notes. <laughs> I'll read, I'll read it from there. So it's, it's 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 9, and this looks like the New American Standard. It says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, that's the one word there, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
So basically, if I just rewind there where he says, some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat it as if it were sacrificed to an idol. What Paul's pointing out there is he's saying that there are people that are going to, that's the story they're telling themselves. They have this meat. They're like, oh, this was offered to Apollo or, you know, or some God. And then they eat it as if, as if that's a whole real, that that story is real. Mm-hmm. And that there's some associated maybe blessing or special privilege that they're imagining for themselves in partaking of that food. Paul's saying, well, we know that that's not real. We know that the person might be imagining that for themselves, but we know that that's just it. That's vain imagination. And that's a defiling of their conscience because that means they're not, they don't have the true knowledge of the, of, of the God who's creator of heaven and earth. So, there's a couple. There's a couple of guys on online who, um, on YouTube, who basically say that they believe in in Yeshua, they believe in the in the Gospels, but they reject Paul. And this is that before. And this is one of the arguments: is that that uh, you know Paul basically contradicted the Torah and contradicted uh, the apostles. Uh, yeah, and the, I, yeah, those those people are the same people. They're like. Chuck Missler. They're just using the. They're using bad hermeneutics in the other direction, though. Exactly. But the point yeah. is, the point is, is that obviously we don't believe that, and Paul has to line up with the rest of Scripture. The only way that I can see that that uh, that First Corinthians eight would line up with the the Acts passages and along with the Torah passage is if Paul's right. <laughs> and it does because what would happen in the my father in that paper that we cited he also goes he also shows how uh, people would uh, do incantations over entire marketplaces so then uh, according to uh, you know if you weren't allowed to eat anything that was ever uh, offered to an idol then you wouldn't be able to eat anything from the marketplace so um, the question is is how would you reconcile Paul in First Corinthians eight to the rest of the scripture passages that we've read. And the answer, in my mind, is is that my father's take is right. It has to be that it, it's uh, you can't participate in a uh, idolatrous ceremony, which includes a, a, a meal offering. And um, so, if you don't take here's, that, here's the other part to that too. People didn't just eat meat. Yeah, meat was you know what I mean. You'd you'd have to be really wealthy, and, and you can't keep it. You have to you, if you're going to slaughter an animal and eat it. You have to have enough people to eat all of it because you can't, you can't keep it. You can't put it in the refrigerator. You know, you can't refrigerate the leftovers and eat it tomorrow or the next day. You pretty much have to eat it. And so, the economy being what it, what it was, you wouldn't be what you wouldn't just cook up all the effort and work into cooking it. You know, slaughtering and cooking the animal. The cost of the animal, first of all, that's coming out of whether you're purchasing it or it's out of your flock. So now it's not going to be productive for you in any other way. And if you're just going to eat a little bit and then throw the rest away, people just didn't, that wasn't an idea. Generally, when the pagans were eating meat, it's in some sort of ritualistic uh, ceremony associated with it. Their meal and people sitting around the meal were... uh, understanding themselves as part of a world that had specific theology, well, we would use the theology, a certain mythology, a certain cosmology, a picture of, of who who their deities were, what they were, maybe it's ancestral worship, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and we, we are distanced from that today. That's not so evident in this world. But back then, it was very, very evident that you know, the meat you ate, who you ate it with, and the ceremonial aspects to that eating were all knit together very, very tightly. And that's what Paul's dealing with. He said, you, you know, that's the, you don't do that. Stay away from that. But if there's meat in the marketplace, that's the, that Paul's discern, making a discernment there. The marketplace is separate. It's it, Once something is being sold and that that now it's it's in a different sphere. It's not in the sphere of that uh, those the table fellowships around this or that uh, t- 
deity that they were deity or deities that are being worshipped and the slaughter associated with it. Once it's on the marketplace and it's out for anybody to purchase, that Paul's recognizing that as a different world. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, and that ties into what I think you might be go- where you might be going with. Uh, well, maybe you weren't with, with the halal or even some types of kosher slaughter. Yeah, and that and that's the that's where I was basically going to go. So, one of the things that people might not realize is that um, certain forms, not all, and I don't want people to think that I'm making a blanket statement here here because I'm certainly not. Uh, but certain forms of Hasidic slaughter, especially in Israel, are are actually done in a certain ritualistic way and not within uh, what most people think of kosher. I'm going to read just a little excerpt from the paper that I uh, wrote and then read at the UMJA conference. And then I'm going to uh, read something from um, a... Uh, a Hasidic teacher. Okay, so here we go. Uh, reincarnation has made its way into the everyday life of the Jew- uh, of Jewish practice, uh, particularly within Israel. Kosher slaughter is extremely str- stringent in Israel, much more so than in the U.S. One of the reasons this has taken place is that kosher slaughter of animals has become much more than what a person can or cannot eat. The slaughter itself has become a ritual, and if this ritual is not performed correctly, it can directly af- affect the souls. Uh, quote. A dimension of magic whose spread, whose spread was aided by the Kabbalah was the concept of reincarnation of the soul. The belief that the souls of the deceased return to this world is different, uh, in different forms, as a human being, an animal, or an inanimate object. Kosher slaughter and eating in accordance with Jewish law, incorporating washing of hands and uh, resuscitation of blessings, uh, acquired an additional m- magical aura uh, because of the notion of reincarnation. Thus, if an animal were slaughtered according to the laws of Kashrut, then the soul that had been reincarnated in that beast was set free and able to improve its spiritual level. While the, end quote. While the scope of this study is not, uh, is not kosher food and its slaughter, this does raise the question, if we as believers are not to eat food that has been used within pagan ritual, should we be eating kosher food that has been slaughtered according to Hasidic halakha as it is believed to release reincarnated souls and bring them back as humans? If this is truly a ritual that is done during the slaughter process, should we as believers support and eat such foods? So the, and that's the end of uh, the quote from my paper. So the question then is, basically what I'm saying is, I don't believe that, uh, you know, that we're prohibited from eating uh, things uh, that might have a blessing over them or something like that to uh, another god. I believe that we're, uh, I believe that we're prohibited from taking part in a, uh, a ritual, a pagan ritual. But listen to this. So basically, uh, in that quote that I cited, in the paper, it doesn't just talk about the kosher slaughter. It's also part of the ritual of releasing the reincarnated soul within Hasidic theology. Is also uh, the actual eating of the <laughs> of the meat uh, once once slaughtered. So check this out. This is from Ariel Bar Zadok, um, and he wrote this for uh, Kosher Torah, which is a website. He says, quotes, human souls are often reincarnated into animals. Of these, kosher animals are, if the, of these, kosher animals are purchased by Jews, slaughtered according to Torah law, and eaten as part of a sadat mitzvah, a festival, a festival meal. We have stories told about many rabbinim who recognize within an animal the soul of a fallen Jew who would then per, uh, purchase the animal for kosher slaughter. We must recite our brachot with full intention and also keep in mind if not verbally state uh, verbally state the following small prayer hashem may it be your will that any souls incarnated in the food that i am about to eat be rectified and elevated to uh, to their holy source above in this way we assist in redeeming fallen souls and keep ourselves away from being blast, uh, blemished the fallen soul soul becomes absorbed into the one eating when that one performs a mitzvah using the strength gaining from the food eaten, the fallen soul is, tr- is transformed into the mitzvah and thus ascends above along with it. The soul has now been elevated. Nonetheless, while it has been cleansed of specific previous sins, it still has no merits uh, to, and then I, I must have 
merits for itself. Uh, yeah, thus Hash, uh, to speak of, uh, sorry, thus Hashem allows the soul to return to the earth to acquire for itself merit by the performance of mitzvot. So basically the question that I'm asking is, is it seems like the, uh, the Hasidic theology and the Hasidic belief is that souls are reincarnated into animals that haven't performed the 613 mitzvot correctly in their life. And they need to be released from that cycle that they're in. That's right. And so the idea is that through the uh, through kosher slaughter and also through the eating of it from a person who says the correct bracha over it, that soul is released and reincarnated into a human, i.e. a Jewish body. So then the question becomes, since it's a pagan ritual, should we as believers eat food that is kosher slaughtered if it's kosher slaughtered by one of the Hasidic groups that are performing these rituals and saying the blessings over the, the meat. What do you think, Rob? If it would, I don't think it's going to be sold on. I don't think it would ever. Uh, theoretically, I, I, I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> but I don't think it would ever happen. Because I don't think that meat would ever make it out to the market. Because the market would be seen as profane space by those, by those ultra-Orthodox. So they wouldn't, you know what I mean? I don't, I think it, it's totally hypothetical. I don't, I, I think in Israel, we, think, how would, how would it ever, you think it would get out to the. Sure. The because sure. You see, you see Hasidically slaughtered meat in, in the, in the Israeli markets all the time. And you can just, okay, well. In Israel. I mean, not, obviously not here. Yeah. But I think within Israel, sure. Especially within places like Meisharim. The ultra orthodox, i.e., Hasidic uh, realm of of of, Jeru- of the new city of Jerusalem, um, I could see I could see that happening because you don't see Muslims or Gentiles basically going into the markets in Meisharim and buying koshered food. You know, it's really only the ultra orthodox that are going into those markets. Pretty tight. Tight knit communities. Super tight knit communities. Tight knit networks. I so, walked. I walked so in. All the people buying that meat probably do. Then would agree. You know, I would say that they're trained. We're talking really tight groups that are educated according to the same program. I mean, they've all been through the same uh, worldview, and they all are in agreement on that. Well, otherwise and, they wouldn't be part of the community. I mean, let's take. Uh, yeah, I I went to an Arab Shabbat. Uh, Actually, it was a Shabbat meal. It was an Oneg meal on Shabbat uh, at a rabbi's house in Meisharim. Now, for all he knew, he didn't know I was Messianic. I was wearing black and white in the whole nine. We had meat at that. At that, uh, you know, we had a brisket. I'm sure it was kosher slaughtered, whether or not it was Hasidic or not. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was, and if they fully believed that they were taking part in the reincarnation of souls. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? <laughs> wow. That's, uh, anyway, okay. Well, this has been a shorter show, and and our a lot of our shows recently have been uh, shorter, and that's because uh, I've been moving, and uh, we went to the UMJA co- conference, which uh, took up a lot of our time, and. Uh, so now we're getting back into the groove of things. Hopefully next week we're going to have a, a longer, back to our normal length of time and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and next week, Rob has already chosen a topic for us. We were, I should say we were going to talk this week about, um, about Annihilation Doctrine. But uh, Lex Myers is the guy who's, who's writing a book on this and is going to be putting out a book on his, his newfound belief in Annihilation Doctrine. I say newfound found belief. I mean, like within the past couple of years. Um, and uh, I decided, you know what? Let's hold off on Annihilation Doctrine until we actually have Lex's book. So I'd like to actually address some of the specific things in his book. Um, so that's why we didn't do that this, this uh, week. And next week, Rob, once again, I love that his parents are listening. All of a sudden, we got Rob <laughs> choosing topics for us. Uh, 
Rob wants to talk. Well, tell us what we're going to talk about next week because it sounded very interesting to me. Well, we're I, we're going to talk about some big picture stuff back in the Second Temple period. How different groups had different types of scripture. You know, we we have the Book of Jubilees. You have the Book of, you know, whatever. You know, and how these different groups divided and saw, you know, we have the truth. No, we have the truth, you know, this sort of thing. And to see that we need to be really grateful for our, for the Bible that we have. Uh, because it, the Bible we have, it wasn't the only thing available, right? It wasn't the only thing out there in the air that people were believing. Um, but uh, we believe that God providentially created what we call the canon of scriptures now and, and that the scriptures are sufficient for um, for its final, final word of authority, for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, etc. Um, and that uh, when we read and when we see the biblical canon against these other books we call non-canonical and understand how those other books influenced and still influence communities today, uh, we get a a sense of the difference and it's important for us to see ourselves in line with scripture and also to understand some of the what is dangerous about trying to introduce other books so we'll, we'll dive into that world i like the way that you put it to me in an email the uh conspiracy theories of the first century because <laughs> we have so yeah. many, we have so many flying around. We have so many conspiracy f- theories flying around within the faith today, right? Uh, sacred name, two house, Aleph Tov, uh, you know, all these, all these like quote unquote conspiracy theory, flat Earth conspiracy theories that are pretty. Yeah, like pretty someone much. would listen to those that Chuck Missile presentation, and boom, they're out. They're going to buy. They're the rest of their life. They're Aleph Tov. Yeah, know, exactly. Buy that Aleph Tov Bible, Aleph Tau. They're going to go around and say Aleph Tau. Oh, out man. of town, out of town. Okay, it, enough on that. Anyway, all right. Well, uh, so thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, everybody, in the chat room. I uh, I noticed that as soon as I jumped in on that conversation, that it shut it down. <laughs> I apologize. And maybe next time I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't try to be a part, part of those conversations. Uh, we sure do appreciate everybody who sends us emails. Send us an email at uh, cheg at torahresource.com or rvanhoff, two Fs in vanhoff, at torahresource.com. You can find everything uh, everything that we talked about in our show notes at trradio.com. And you can go and be a uh, read all sorts of free articles, buy products and everything from torahresource.com. So big thanks. Uh, we hope to... Glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>